Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners, Chris and Killian. It is our very first podcast of the new year, and we made a few predictions on our blog on what we might see more of in 2018. So please share what prediction you think is going to drive headlines this year. Hi, this is Killian. Through the list, there are a lot of top contenders, but I think the one that we'll really see the most of is probably going to be more fun with IoT devices. And by fun, I mean bad news. The crave is going to continue as we hook up more and more devices to the Internet. We're looking for that connected experience, every part of our life in harmony and sync with every other part of our life. But I think the downside to that is in the rush, security is, of course, going to take a back burner. And we've seen it so many times before, but I think uh, that that freight train is not slowing down anytime soon. This is Chris. I do think that the point that's mainly going to be most prevalent is going to be the one about regulations. GDPR is coming and coming quickly. The EU is going to have a lot to deal with. A lot of people are rushing to make sure they're compliant. I also think that once that's in place, the companies that are held to it are abiding by it. I think we are getting a little bit of GDPR envy over here in the United States. People are going to demand that their data is kept safe. Uh, that companies who are responsible for it are doing the right thing and locking it down properly. I think we're going to see more and more regulation about how data is stored, more and more stringent uh, rules about how this has been done, especially because people are scared, you know, for, for the same reason that people freaked out over Equifax, people freaked out over um, the different breaches we've seen in the, in the news lately. I think we're going to see more and more in call for responsibility and regulation around that. Thanks, guys. And for our regular listeners, if you enjoy our show, if you can rate and review our podcast on iTunes, we'll send you a deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. To learn more, please visit veronis.com slash review. So when we started the show, we talked a bit about predictions. And what we're also really doing is we're talking about different ways to prepare and prevent future cybersecurity attacks. And this is what IBM is doing. They're setting up cybersecurity test labs where companies can experience what it's like to go through a cyber attack without any risk. And what they found through testing industrial control systems is that they're old. They're 30 years old, created long before people thought about security by design. And they're able to take off-the-shelf hacker tools to break a system without coding anything. And they're also basically working with legacy systems. So they have to upgrade. And ultimately, it seems that uh, the costs will outweigh the security benefits. And it also seems like the challenges are, are mounting too, because passwords and usernames for industrial systems are on documentation, all of which can be found via a Google search. And because everything is online, the surface area of a potential attack also increases. What do you think the biggest risk organizations are faced with, particularly uh, healthcare? And, and let's play with any solutions you might have or a place where people can at least start with. Just to break this down a little bit, I think that's a great idea, having people run through kind of a, an exercise to deal with cyber attacks. If you think about it, you wouldn't send, for example, like a firefighter out to deal with a, a fire call unless he's had some training. So security experts often find themselves in situations where they're facing an attack. And a lot of times they might not always be completely prepared on how to run through that scenario. 
tabletop exercises, things like that, having SOPs, those are all critically important. But being through it, simulating it is a great way to figure out how you'll react under the stress and the pressure to a certain extent and give you a better way to kind of keep your head on straight in some ways when going through it. So you can act as quickly as you need to and as efficiently as you need to. So I think that's a really, really awesome idea. And you think, of course, too, anybody who's been in a stressful situation, you know, or your fine motor skills go away, your gross motor skills take over, there's a little bit of panic. So to operate, you know, at that high level to deal with some of these security risks and think clearly becomes even more important, especially dealing with the constant influx of cyber attacks that we deal with kind of on a day-to-day basis. I love the idea of putting training in place, putting labs in place, you know, investing in making sure people have the knowledge set, the skill set. And again, as you said, killing the temperament to handle incidents when they do come up. We're, we're in a world now where there's so many systems that are connected to the internet or accessible via the internet, basically becoming vulnerable. I think what, what happened was people really wanted to build things for convenience sake or efficiency sake. This is something you see all the time. You know, it's, it's something that I studied back in, in grad school where we think about the ethics of what you're setting up. The ethics of what you've built. Are you preparing to, uh, you know, ensure the safety of these systems as opposed to just the functionality of them? Now, while I'm sure it's been great in any number of ways in terms of how we've been more efficient and more able to to get work done and and, and fix potential issues, uh, not on the security side. You know, different systems that are out there. If, if something goes wrong in an industrial plant, being able to hit a button and fix it from from miles away is is amazing. The issue is um, then opening the same control up to potential malicious entities. I think, Chris, you're, you're hitting on an incredibly important point. A lot of what we do as people in a lot of cases is, you know, we deal with certain things on a day-to-day basis that are maybe repetitive or annoying or stressful, and we want to ease that burden on ourselves from a, from a personal perspective. We can feel like we're in a hamster wheel a little bit running around. So we come up with ways, I mean, look at a lot of the kind of outcroppings of of where we're at in terms of automation. We started by writing scripts and things like that to make our life a little bit better to uh, automate repeatable processes. It's very similar. I remember in a previous life, there was a, there was some equipment that you know occasionally would need to be rebooted. Again, you go back with some of the equipment, sometimes that's the only solution. If things get a little bit jammed up, you reboot it. It's the old you know Windows thing. And I remember at the time, somebody had a power strip that was Telnet enabled blew my mind. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And they loved it because every once in a while, instead of having to get in the car, drive to wherever this equipment was located, go in the building, flip it off, flip it back on again, they could tell it into the, the power strip and do it remotely. And this saved so much time. And, you know, when there was problems with the equipment, people would complain. Again, it was a two-minute fix, about as long as a phone call to do it, as opposed to the 15, 20 minutes, half hour to, to drive over there and back. So you think about those productivity increases from a business perspective that's what we want to do we want to make our lives easier but you know make our customers lives better Um, if there's a problem with the power grid how much easier is it to uh, remotely address and maybe correct some things with this with the control systems uh, remotely without having to spend time of customers being out of power and being upset and potentially maybe even in danger when you can do it remotely but the the danger of that is as you mentioned chris that's a whole other avenue of attack uh, and exploit because people realize that you know while we're using it for good they can flip that right back around and say, well, now I can take over and shut it down and accomplish my goal of, of being disruptive or uh, malicious. I keep thinking back of that line from Jurassic Park. They were so excited. To, you know, what was what, what is it? The, the Ian Malcolm quote. They were so excited to know that they could do that they didn't stop to think whether they should. It's kind of like that. Like, oh, this is a great idea. Let's, you know, make a telnet an hour power strip. Well, what are the repercussions of this? How could this thing that benefits me possibly be turned around? And I think that, you know, we're talking about legacy systems that have been around for decades. 
the mindset wasn't the same. I mean, maybe for, for a few people, but in, in terms of design, they were like, let's go for functionality. Let's not worry as much about whether or not in 30 years, this is something that's going to come back to bite us. And it seems like it has. We can probably rename all of our computer security, uh, you know, college courses and uh, online training just, just to that quote, the Dr. Ian Malcolm School of uh, Thinking About the Consequences. <laughs> Pretty much. So we talk about legacy systems and what would you say to organizations who are vulnerable, but for numerous reasons, it could be whatever their constraints are because they're on legacy systems and they can't upgrade or they can't figure out the security part. They don't want to publicize how vulnerable their systems might be. What would you say to that? How would you fix it if you were in their shoes? That's the million dollar question right there, really. <laughs> it's hard because, well, you may not want to make this stuff public. Sometimes you're regulated to do so, or especially in the case of when you get hit with an attack, you have to you know, disclose it. But at the same time, there's obviously a fear that comes with telling someone you're vulnerable, even on a personal level. Uh, imagine that someone's telling someone how vulnerable you are in a certain situation. Imagine scaling that up to a multinational corporation. Hey, you know, I was responsible for this particular gap. There's an obvious hesitancy there to do so. I don't know what I'd say. I'd say that, look, you know, you just make sure they're aware of the repercussions of doing so. Oftentimes, when you frame it in, here's what could happen if you don't resolve the issues that are out there. A lot of times people are, are used to being reactive instead of proactive. If you aren't aware of an issue, you're not going to go out of your way to fix it or find a way to improve. But if someone shows you, hey, here's the, here's the way that someone could get into your system, here's the gaps we've seen before, how they've been exploited in other organizations like your own, telling them what they need to be afraid of effectively, which you know may be necessary. That's a really tough one, honestly. And I, I've seen it so many times over the years and I've just especially dealing with, you know, compliance and regulations. There's a lot of different factors that go into it. From the business perspective, sometimes it comes down to a cost versus risk thing. You know, can I indemnify myself against the risk through like cyber insurance? Is that, is, is paying the fine or paying that insurance, does it cost less than addressing what the problem is? And I think that's where regulations come in a lot too. GDPR is, is going to be a game changer. It's already, we're starting to see it be a game changer. I think, was it 4% of global revenue if, if there's an incident? Americans are going to start demanding that type of protection. I mean, you know, let's look at Equifax for a second. That's a, that's a great example. It all came down to basically not patching a system in time. If there was something like GDPR in place uh, at that time, the, the cost of even taking the, the entire web infrastructure offline, losing that couple days uh, of business process time and uptime, that would be a drop in the bucket compared to the find something like GDPR would levy against them. So it's a little bit heavy handed and it doesn't work in every situation, but sometimes it makes sense in that context. And again, that's not always the right solution at all times. But it's better than nothing. Correct. So another story I think that'll help us figure out what we might be up against in the upcoming year is there's a story about how Hotmail, how they acquired it and how it was a challenge when they brought it into their system. So Bill Gates, he spent $450 million to buy Hotmail and product manager was tasked with finding a way to create a free web-based email for the entire world. So that's a huge undertaking, right? And what they found is that integrating Hotmail into their system wasn't the easiest thing. And there are a lot of growing pains. And I liked how it impacted how they currently run Azure Cloud. They learned best practices, what worked, what didn't work. What do you think the most important lesson about adopting 
hot mail to an organization that worked really hard to integrate it into the family, but still fell short. In the era in which they were going through this process, it, it was so brand new. We think this kind of stuff is kind of taken for granted now, you know. There's, at the time, there wasn't really a lot of good solutions for free webmail out there in the first place. So after Microsoft actually you know, acquired it, they had to do a lot of work to making sure it was you know, up to code and ready to handle the expected load that was going to come from you know, being a Microsoft product. It seems that they had a ton of work to do just getting this thing to actually scale and to actually you know, work. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to, to figure out what protocol to use or figuring out how best to actually do this, talking about the, the, the cost of storage. But you got you to remember back then storage was infinitely more expensive than it is today. Just ridiculously expensive by today's standards. And they, they're dealing with things like, you know, working through SSL, which they, they, they don't love the way that they did this. They kind of did part of it SSL and part of it not. But And they mentioned in the article, you know, this would be unheard of it by today's standards as well. Just a lot that went into this. It's unreal. And I will admit that I am somebody who still has uh, an old Hotmail account. It's kind of funny reading this entire history of it and seeing exactly what went into turning it into such a, a prevalent, uh, I guess, force on the internet. One of the most interesting things I got from this article is that when you sit down and you look at stuff on paper, things seem so much easier in a lot of ways. You look at it and go, oh, you know, there's a there's a bunch of servers, there's a database on the back end, um, there's a web front end. You know, how hard could it be to to make this switch? from one platform to another, from one database to another. But the reality is, it's incredibly difficult. And I think we see that, you know, to tie back into the security world, you know, we look at some of these security problems and on their surface, we look and go, well, you know, how hard could it possibly be? And not that all security people are, are exhibiting um, deliberate hubris, but you look at it on paper and you go, this is something I can work with. The problem seems like it's manageable until you start to get deep into the problem and you realize there are kind of, once you get under that surface, the waters might seem calm at the, at the top, but, you know, you could hit that undertow. And I think we see that with our security controls. Again, we put in place firewall, antivirus, um, all these other kind of very traditional controls, but there's always something else. As we build the systems uh, more complex and more interconnected, there are more pieces that it's almost impossible for every human to understand just with that level of complexity. So there's always something else that we need to consider when looking at, at building out these solutions and architectures. And I think the Hotmail story is a great example of that. Just again, the same lessons can apply across the board. That lesson can really apply to Vector and Meltdown. They're a threat right now to devices that use Intel chips and chips from AMD and ARM. And so what happens is an attacker who controls one system can use the vulnerabilities to steal secret data elsewhere on the computer. So what do you guys think about throwing your devices away and buying a new one? How bad do you think this vulnerability could be? I think this is one of the worst I've seen. It's really hard to fix. So I think I think Mike actually contributed to an article about this or, or gave a quote for it. Basically makes it so the end user's device can be, an attacker can get into that device and look at the memory itself. So if you're running an application, even on even a JavaScript application in a browser, could look at your kernel memory and see whatever's in there. Now, it doesn't guarantee that what's in there at the moment is going to be necessarily something that is sensitive or private, but the possibility does absolutely exist for this information to be easily, well, I mean, not easily, but taken, you know, in, in ways that uh, we haven't seen before. And this is something that has to do with the chip itself. It's a, a problem with the physical chip. It's not a software bug, which makes it so, so much harder to patch or fix. And some of the, the issues that we're seeing here is that 
in order to fix some of these properly, I mean, it can be can be done, but with a significant hit to performance. I think they estimated about 30% for certain devices, which is huge. That is that is a massive hit to an architecture. Well, actually, I'm not answering the question here. The, the question was about throwing away your devices. I don't know that that's feasible for most people. There may be certain organizations where you can do that. But again, this is something, these, these two together uh, with Spectre and Meltrum, they, they cover a lot of the big names in, in uh, chip manufacturing. So this is Intel, this is AMD, this is ARM. That's a big chunk of it. The software bug you can patch pretty quick. Fixing a, a hardware issue could take years before they can develop a chip that can run at comparable speeds to what we're used to and also not have the same vulnerability. So I don't know where we're going from here. Well, I, I think the assertion that we can just throw away our devices and get new devices that aren't vulnerable is it's just monetarily not practical. I wish we all had disposable income just to buy new machines, but there's not a chip out there right now. You know, Intel didn't come up with the, I'm not even sure what their latest chip is, the Coffee Lake or whatever it is, or Cabby Lake or one of them, that, that doesn't have this vulnerability or AMD, um, again, has some level of vulnerability as well too. So if we could all just go out and do that, that's the best case scenario if we had money. But the reality of it is it's the problem still exists to some form or another. So until they re-architect the chip, and that could take, you know, a couple years maybe, at this point uh, until they redesign it and then it eventually hits manufacturing, we're going to live with this. The other kind of scary thing too is that this goes back, you know, 20 years, something like that with this chip architecture. So there is a deep bench of devices still affected. Think about cell phones and things like that or, or laptops. If you're, if you're, how difficult is it to get even, you know, your phone manufacturers, uh, older Android devices, your grandparents to go check for updates on their, on their Windows laptop or their Android phone right now? The struggle that we have with that is, is incredible, leaving a lot of devices vulnerable. So I don't even think that's necessarily a great solution either. So we're kind of stuck in a lot of ways. In the future, again, until we, until we have to re-architect, you have to weigh the risks versus the, the benefits. Um, I was actually talking to a buddy of mine who does uh, high-speed coding uh, in C. So they write it you know, in C, try and get as, as deep down as they can to make the transaction as fast as possible. And I asked him, I said, what are you guys doing about it? Are you willing to take that performance hit on your high-speed systems? They, that's what they operate for. They're optimized specifically for that. And he said, it depends. It depends on what data it's processing and how valuable it is and if we're going to connect it to anything else or how we're going to connect it to other things. So there's going to be a trade-off here. If that high-speed operability is more valuable, then they might not do anything about it until that new architecture is there. For the general populace, we'll probably not see much of a difference as they try and implement some of their software patches, but the big vendors, you know, the cloud vendors, I, I think th this is an opportunity where we're going to see maybe some really creative solutions. The, the, one of the articles I read mentioned how it was a really interesting coincidence that four different teams found the same bug around the same time. What gets to me is that it took so long for this to happen. This is two decades worth of, of chips that are out there. This could be you know, millions or billions of devices. What frightens me is this is the first time it's been reported. Whether or not it's been known or exploited isn't entirely clear. So it's entirely possible this has been an issue for 20 years. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the people who found this are the, the first to find it because otherwise this could be a pretty major issue. I think, Chris, you kind of hit a huge point. Security through obscurity is not security at all. You know, that's security 101 maybe. Would be naive to think that nobody else had found this in the last 20 years. You know, now it's finally become public, but you can't tell me that uh, nation states and things like that who do security research, who have, you know, their security um, team dedicated to looking for these, for that advantage for espionage or whatever else, hasn't found this already. And I guarantee there are tons more out there that 
they know about and they're actively using and exploiting that, again, haven't seen the light of day. It's just a matter of time. As we get more people and more devices and more processes working on it, it becomes more valuable to people to look for these things. So Mike Buckby is out sick this week, so we don't have a tool of the week, but since it's the new year, and I'm sure we all made New Year's resolutions. But yeah, I guess, you know, as we are security practitioners, the the goal is, I guess, every year to try and make sure that you are up to date or even ahead of the curve on what's happening in the industry, what's happening in the world with regards to security, making sure that you're as informed as you can be. Uh, I guess my my resolution on this is just to make sure that I'm reading as much as I can, make sure that I'm on top of this, make sure I can articulate it to people that ask me questions. Chris, you kind of stole my uh, my New Year's resolution. <laughs> I, I think that's the important thing, and that's one of the reasons that I really love doing this show is in some ways, I mean, we are targeted more towards a security audience, but hopefully we can be security ambassadors to a certain extent. Um, some of the information that we share, hopefully people listening, maybe will think of a new perspective or maybe even share that with some of their you know, friends, relatives. And we can hopefully, you know, maybe this is starry-eyed idealist, but maybe we can make a little bit of a benefit to the, to the world in general. If we can get, you know, one more person thinking about, hey, I need to back up my data or I need to patch my systems regularly. Or again, I'm sure we all get asked by relatives, hey, you know, can you help me with this computer thing? Sometimes it's kind of a bummer. Uh, nobody really wants to do it. But if we can think, yeah, well, you know what, maybe it is worth that little bit of extra time to help them stay on top of these things versus, you know, the, the phone call that we might get, hey, my computer uh, blew up and caught on fire. Can you help me solve this crisis? So uh, a little bit of preventative medicine uh, for the security world might go a long way. Thanks to Killian Engler, Chris Kaiser, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, to find some of the stories we're discussing, you can find us at infosec underscore podcast. Thanks, and we'll meet up again soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.